The Veterans Affairs Department was the only large agency to improve its employee satisfaction score last year. It ranked number five in the large agency Best Places to Work listing. Gina Grosso, the VA's Assistant Secretary for Human Resources and Administration, tells Federal News Network's Drew Friedman that COVID-19 really changed how the VA, like so many other agencies, is thinking about its own workforce. If you just kind of look back on the last few years in the COVID environment, it was obviously a very unique environment. I mean, I don't think most of the people here that were here at the time, because it really started two years ago, really had operated in a pandemic environment. And it's just like the country. A lot of the things that we did, we did very differently. Well, the same thing was for the VA. And in some ways, when you have those kinds of crises, you get to do things that you don't normally do. And I think that we were able to very cognizant to take care of our veterans. We had to take care of the workforce and to take care of the workforce. We just had to do things differently. And so we got a lot of authorities from Congress and from OPM that allowed us to be able to take care of the workforce and make it a little easier to work in a very complex environment that we were all learning. And so I think that attention to the workforce, because it's the people that take care of the veterans and with some loosened authorities, but from from a hiring perspective and from a pay perspective, I think it helped the employees see how important they were to the mission. And I can't compare it to farther back because I simply wasn't here, but I think that I've reflected on that. And, you know, honestly, we were so excited because it's the first time we've ever been in the top five. So, and I also just think we have a great leadership team here too with Secretary McDonough. You know, my vast experience from 30 plus years in the military and now here, you know, organizations take on the personality of their leader. And we have such a leader that is so committed to veterans. In the end, leaders start to emulate that. And so I think that I genuinely think that's a part of it as well. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the hiring process, specifically for healthcare workers at the VA. What are some of the things that you're working on right now to try to overcome some of those obstacles? Well, I don't want to I don't want to say that hiring is easy, but we don't tend to have a lot of vacancies. So if you think about the VA right now is is about 420,000 people. And so we have constant turnover. We're, our turnover as I understand it from from the year I've been here is about 8 to 10%. So if you think about that, that is 40 to 50 to 60,000 people. And so we we obviously are always hiring, but the authorities that we got with with COVID made it easier to hire. It also gave us flexibilities on pay and it gave us flexibilities on retaining. Again, especially because it was an environment unlike any other, especially in the healthcare industry. So I think all of those helped. And I think that as we go into the PACT Act, which is even more exciting, honestly, it's so for me, I am feel so privileged that I'm here at this time when we passed historic legislation that's going to help us get three, at least probably we estimate 3.5 million more veterans care. The cool thing is we get all of these new authorities from Congress that that again are all about the workforce and hiring people. But in general, we have the workforce that we are funded for, and now we're going to get more funding and we're hiring more people. And that's a lot of the energy that we're spending right now. You know, what kind of people do we need and how quickly can we get them on board? And how are we leveraging those authorities that Congress was so generous in giving us? We are so grateful to Congress for the authorities that they gave us, especially on the workforce, and and that they recognized that the workforce was really critical. In my experience with federal government, which is most of my career, some places just don't value the people and the people almost everywhere make it happen. And so it was so wonderful just to see that not only does Congress want to take care of these veterans, but they realize the VA had to have the right people to do that. So we are very fortunate. And so it's exciting on multiple fronts, honestly, that we're taking care of veterans, but we're going to get this workforce that we need to do that. So it's a great time to be at the VA. And let's dive into the PACT Act a little bit more specifically. Some of the things that were included in it, one part of it has the VA 
planning to work with the Office of Personnel Management to establish qualifications and performance metrics for human resources positions at the VA. Can you tell me more about what is the significance of that part of the legislation? As we were collaborating with Congress and, you know, obviously if they needed something, I mean, they would come to us and say, hey, what do you think about this? But I don't recall being asked about measuring the HR workforce and I don't have any problem with it, but it was interesting when it came out, it was news to us as well. But I think, again, it's a recognition that if we're going to hire significantly more people, the HR people are the people you need first. And I think that's why they realized we were probably going to need to hire a lot more HR people, which is correct. And they wanted us to be deliberate about it so that we would have an HR workforce that was competent enough to do all the extra hiring that we need to do. So that, that's an assumption on my part. But we're really excited about it. So the HR, basically, that we have 180 days to get this the new requirements in place. And we're collaborating across the HR function in the VA, which is, so I work at the headquarters, and really I'm responsible for policy and a little bit of execution. And then each of the administrations have a, a Chico of their own. But we're very collaborative. So all of us are working together to create the qualification standards. And we're happy to partner with OPM, too. They've been a great partner with us so that we have the right standards, so we hire the right people so that we can take care of the veterans that we serve. You've spoken previously about some of the inefficiencies in the VA's hiring process, basically how different areas of hiring across different parts of the VA in the country make it difficult to kind of automate or streamline the processes and improve IT systems overall. Is that something where you're also trying to improve the technology that's used in the hiring process? And how are you trying to collaborate across different areas of the VA that are all trying to hire at the same time? The health administration is separate from the our cemeteries, which is separate from our benefits, and they all have their own HR infrastructure. And even though they follow the same rules because they're hiring different kinds of people, they have different tactics. But in general, both of them, both VHA has already been kind of conducting in-person job fairs. So COVID, and this, I know this sounds like it shouldn't be really exciting, but it is because of COVID for two years, we weren't doing any in-person job fairs. And the HR team will tell you that we did a ton of virtual job fairs and we were relatively successful, but they don't compare to in-person. And so just in the last about four months, we've been starting to do again in-person job fairs, which we have great success with. And when you do that, depending on what you're hiring for, you can actually make tentative job offers and you can actually start the onboarding process. And so it does make a huge difference. So thankfully, COVID, we're in a better place with COVID. And now we've got these, these very flexible authorities. We're doing these job fairs where people come and you're able to hire very quickly. Veterans Benefits Administration, they're leveraging all of the new authorities, direct hiring authorities, continuous announcements. So meaning you're, you always have an announcement out there hiring um, the non-competitive veteran and military spouses because there's authorities for that as well and doing national announcements so you're getting people across across the nation and in all of these again were enabled by congress it, there's just excitement about having these abilities and having again the ability to do the incentives that help us attract people i just feel like we're tremendously important and when you think about the va the front door is actually the benefits administration. And so the bulk of the front end work will be, will start with the benefits administration because they say that this individual, yes, qualifies for this benefit. And Congress was very generous too because they lowered the bar on what we have to prove basically to allow someone to get that care. They, they call it presumptives. And it basically makes it easier for somebody, if you've been at this place and had this exposure, we just presume you get that care. The individuals will be able to start applying for this on the 1st of January. So kind of to one of your earlier questions, 
we are working literally night and day to get the policies out. So we have all these great authorities from Congress, but we have now got to write the policy. And we just have, I have to brag on Tracy. We, we have one of the best Chicos in the federal government, seriously. And so she is making sure that the, that we get the policy out so that all of the admins can actually use it, use those authorities. Gina Grosso, VA's Assistant Secretary for Human Resources and Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 